I'm excited that the pandemic, for all its negative, also said, hey, wait a minute, we need to concentrate on food resiliency. We need to encourage these small, diverse farms because the big operations, the five huge companies that sell 99% of the meat in this country failed us for what reason. The structure, the food system structure failed us. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers. To share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thank you for joining us today. First up, please register for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to uh, UMass in Western Massachusetts uh, the last week of January. This event is a partnership between the Northeast Grazing and Livestock Conference and the Northeast Pasture Consortium Annual Meeting. We have some of the latest research to share on nutrient-dense foods and silvopasture and forage species. We have farmer panels coming up, practical presentations about farmers doing interesting things, lots of discussion. Uh, The keynote is Mark Schatzker, who wrote Steak and the Dorito Effect and the End of Craving. He's awesome. And there's going to be plenty of time to connect with friends from around the region. It's a hybrid conference, so there is also an online option for folks who live just too far away to come in person or don't have farm coverage. Um, Registration links are right in the show notes, and we hope to see you there. And when I say we, I am totally serious. I mean me too. I have been part of the planning team for this event, and we're so excited to be back in person bringing together livestock farmers from all around the Northeast region. So I hope that you come join us in person or online. Um, We'd be so excited to have you. So on this episode, we're going to continue the conversation with John Roberts. So John... uh, is a th- was a 30-plus year, uh, almost 35-year, first-generation dairy farmer and is now the director of USDA Farm Service Agency in Vermont. So here's John to talk a little bit more about what he's doing these days. What got me first involved in ag policy was way back in the Cunin administration when somehow I got invited to be on a committee to look at the future of ag in Vermont and talk about diversification. And we were all on that committee. There were what, I think there were 20 20 or 30 farmers, got to know an awful lot of people. And I've always been outspoken and and interested. And, And luckily, Vermont is the perfect place for me to be to do that. And I got to serve on national 
organizations for one reason or another. Interestingly, you just, well, not you, but there were the, the National Grazing Coalition was just here. I know. And I was very sorry that I I would love, I wish I'd sort of known about it sooner. And I would love to attend because I was actually the very first chair of the National Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative back in 19, whatever it was, 96. I think oh. they, I think NATGLC started in 91, I think, or 92. Yeah, well, that's, I would have to, I would, I just, I just saw it written literally this morning. Yeah. No, I'm on the NatGLC board now. Well, I don't I was, know if you knew that. <laughs> well, that's it. You go back and look. It's changed its name, but I was their first chair. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I had no idea. I was asked to be on it by Leahy's people. They, I somehow got, they got in touch with me and we were grazing back then. Yeah. And that is, actually, I, I wish we'd stayed grazing. I, I would what I know now about farming, I wish I could go back 40 years <laughs> and implement. Um you know, it's it's I'm hoping for reincarnation, Jen, so I can get it right next time. <laughs> is there is yeah, but I don't know. The the things that I have read about about such such topics uh we often just don't remember what we learned from the previous life anyway so we have to learn again <laughs> that'd, be true. that'd be true which you know i would go back uh and start life over again uh, to be what to try to be wiser but i'm not sure that i want to actually be younger there's sort of a trade-off there <laughs> uh, i'm i am pretty comfortable um so anyway, I got invited to see if I wanted to do this job. Yeah. And then I didn't hear anything for five months. Literally, there was silence. And I sort of thought, what? Well, and, but it just is amazing how the process just took yeah. a very long time. It's a great long process, isn't it? Um, That's yeah. Well, I think part of it, of course, was caused by the fact that the transition from Trump to Biden was so bad. Right. You know, there was none of the normal, <laughs> what we consider normal sort of uh, cooperation that. Speaking of stuff, yeah. So anyway, yeah. Um, I took this job, and and then part of it was. No, during the Obama administration, I had been the chair of the state FSA committee. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew, I, and, and I'd been an FSA borrower at one time, so I knew a lot of the people. Mm -hmm. That was partly what attracted me. I work in very administrative, very human resources program, but I work with a great group of people who are dedicated like right now with a disaster, very frustrating because it is so convoluted and so slow, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it will get there and farmers will get help. But trying to tell them you just got to be patient really doesn't work. <laughs> and I'm sure yeah. I know I've heard from good friends of mine who say, 
what the F is going on, you know? I'm busy telling my bosses in Washington, we need to revamp these programs. We need to, and they they are interested in that. They, they're not ignoring that. It's just incredible how complex it is. You have, yeah. you have USDA, and then you have the administration, the White House, Right. OMB. Right. Then you have Congress. Right. And everybody's got to have their finger in the pie. And some of the people have their fingers in the wrong pie. <laughs> <laughs> and and some of them can't even agree how to bake the pie. <laughs> well, it's not a pie, it's a cake. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You don't right. Even, yeah. That's so what, that's that's what we're seeing right now, you know. Well, and I, I this is this is where I think it is so interesting to have a person like you be in this position to have been a farmer for so long, like very practical day-to-day decisions, short-term decisions, long-term decisions, working toward the things real life and working toward things that that are for the betterment of your farm and your family and your and your business and how does that translate into policy and recognizing that it does take a really long time in the government, in any bureaucracy, any of them, to make change and to make it how, I don't even know what the formative question here is, but like, what's, <laughs> how do I, how do I cope? <laughs> it's, yes, um... it's a part of that question. How do you cope? But, but also like, how do you make change where you can in such a big system because you are a practical person and you know that there are little things that can unlock big things in these. I just remember eight or 10 years ago, and time has no meaning any longer, that uh, NRCS, in, and I believe this was federal, not just a, a Vermont NRCS thing. I think it was a federal. There was a tiny change I think it was out of Office of Management and Budget where they were allowed to wrap money over like it prior to from year to year. So prior to that, down to September 30th, if something wasn't absolutely locked in, contracted, there was no it had to be in the computer system. If there was no room for anything, somehow a tiny little piece of information somewhere got unlocked so that things could wrap over for a period of time over yep. multiple years. And yep. so it became so much less frenetic, so much easier for the farmers. I wouldn't say it necessarily got faster, but it suddenly people were not freaking out. It was much more flexible. It's okay if we don't spend all the money this spend all the money this year because we'll just sign people up on October 1st and we'll just keep rolling. And it was like we could be NRCS could be so much more constructive when they had that little tiny thing unlocked and i'm just like curious what what is in fsa that can unlock things like that if we can't turn the whole ship at once well it it is and one thing you learn is that or i've learned you know when congress passes a law there is you take they take the law and then they write rules about how to implement what Congress has passed. And, and then the, and the rule writing 
has to be done in such a way that Congress sort of says, oh, yeah, that encompasses the spirit of the law. But I have learned there are ways of going back and saying, oh, maybe we didn't get the rule quite right. We need to make a rule change. And that goes through a process. It's not as tedious as going to Congress and saying, hey, we got to rewrite the law. And one of my major frustrations, oh, a significant frustration right now is Vermont is the only state, I believe, in the country where, do you know what, you know what crep is? The, I do, but please, please, ex yeah. yeah, please explain it. Conservation yeah. Reserve Environmental Program. I think that's what the acronym stands for. I think it for. might be enhancement, but I'm rusty. Enhancement, it is. is it enhancement? Yes. Okay, okay, Thank yeah, you. I'm rusty. And it's basically that farmers can take out of production uh, land and plant it to trees and they get for like 15 year contract, they get a, a yearly payment. And they also, the planting of the trees and the building of the fence and all of this is basically covered by the government. But Vermont, because of the RAPs, mm -hmm. Um, required ag practices, I should say, for food ag practices. That is. Yep. So there was a determination in Washington that said, oh, you have these rules that say you have a 25-foot buffer anyway from a waterway. Why are we going to pay you oh. for a buffer? And, oh, for about two, three years, there was a complete, we weren't getting any crap projects done in Vermont. This is before my time. This is back during the Trump administration, I think, mostly. And finally, we got a point where, okay, we could do crap projects again, but every single one of them had to go to Washington to be signed off on. I would sign off on them as state director, but then they'd have to go to Washington. So it just wow. it got done, but it added, you know, month or two months of time to the process. Right. And how many people does does each of oh, those that, applications have to pass through? Right. And it, is it, that is that a, is that a big part of this actually that it just has to pass through so many hands? Um, it, it is part of it, but it's also uh, people are generally overworked and understaffed and things mm -hmm. sit in computers for a while before action is taken. Um, now we've got, we're hoping, I'm hoping, I know that uh, a, it's literally going to take a change to the farm bill to get rid of all of that for us. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that our congressional group have are have introduced a change to the farm bill and of course right now the farm bill isn't going anywhere right I, yeah no so that I'm, seems to be i'm hopeful that we may you. finally get rid of that but that's that's occasionally what it takes yeah it's the literal changes to the law i see our response to 
this disaster and I'm telling my bosses, there's a sort of a whole series of things that I think need to be improved. And one of them is, you know, we have uh, crop insurance programs that were based on the major commodities. So corn, soybeans, wheat. Mm -hmm. And they and they weren't based on the type of farming we do either in Vermont. I was going to say soybeans and wheat are not big. I mean, we don't have that much right. corn land either, and and it's like not really, not not comparatively, not compared to other places. Soybeans are a lot bigger than they used to be in Vermont, but they're mm -hmm. still not big. And um, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and when I hear from vegetable growers that in order to comply with NAP, as it's called the and for some reason, it's the non-insured uh, agricultural product thing, but it's actually an insurance program, but it's for specialty crops. When I hear that, you know, these farmers are counting bunches of cilantro or, you know, ridiculous right. Right. numbers of when, when right. did you plant? And, 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 and it can't sort of cope with the fact that, okay, most, produce farmers are planting lettuce every two or three weeks and you're not just planting wheat at the beginning of the year and it's a it's like a really different it's a really different structure isn't it i always found that with with the grazing side Absolutely. and crop insurance is that there could be payments for drought but not for too much water um and uh -huh. you know some of those programs are set up to support not always the best farming practices. I just want to say that in a kind way, because I recognize we also do need to have, it's good to have some sort of insurance, but also some of the programs are set up to, well, grazing didn't really have much of a support for a long time. And it's like, if you're a good grazer, then you, apparently you don't need insurance. Like, wait, what? <laughs> you know? Sometimes right. things are out of your control, even if you are a great manager and you know, and, um, and yeah, how do how do we support those folks? Yeah, Vermont in particular and New England in general have less take up of insurance than almost any other region of the country. Yeah, uh, about thirty percent or less. I saw that very dramatically during the freeze. Mm -hmm. Back in less than twelve months, we've had three disasters hit Vermont. You know, we yeah. had a snowstorm around Christmas, which did a significant amount of damage to the maple industry. Oh. Um, then we had the freeze in May that did unbelievable damage to orchards and small fruits and all that sort of thing. And now we've had a flood, which has just ru ruined everything else. One of my staff, very forward-thinking person, sent me a spreadsheet of rain in every county in Vermont from July 1 to the end of August. Mm -hmm. And it is staggering how much rain we've had. And the wettest county actually is, or the, the county that's had the most rain is Addison County. Mm -hmm. We haven't had as quite as dramatic flooding, um, except if you live right on Otter Creek. Right. Uh, and and the are certainly two or three farmers I know who've lost significant amounts of corn. But it's just been perpetually wet. I think in 
60 days. We had only six days when it didn't rain. Yeah. Yeah. At that time. And, you know, Lamoille County is sort of the second most inundated county. And then it goes, but none of them, all, it's all the difference between like 21, 22 inches of rain in that time and 17 inches of rain. So like, you know, it just, it's still significant. Still way, 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 yeah. way. Yeah. And yeah, we need programs that, and hopefully we'll get programs that will encompass the excessive moisture. Cause I'm sure that's, yeah. it's our fate in the Northeast more than really severe droughts. And when I found the only real disaster I ever had was back our very first year of farming when we had one of the worst droughts Vermont ever had. In those days, Canada wasn't impacted and it was very easy to get tractor trailer loads of hay out of Canada. And the government paid for it hand over fist. It was almost too easy to get the money. Oh. Huh. Um, but those programs are long gone. They're long gone now. Yeah. And I'm hoping, yeah. I'm waiting to hear, I would like to see a program that will help our livestock farmers buy some of the feed they need. Um, I'm hoping, but I haven't heard definitely yet. And then, of course, there is, you know, congressional staff are working on a big plan. Yeah. So we'll see. Given the length and breadth of your experience in farming and agriculture as a, as a producer and as a technical assistance provider and you know, all of it, administrator and a regulator, you've done a little bit of everything, John. Like, I, I guess that's true. Yeah. So it's not just the length of your career, sir. It is actually that you've done a lot of different things in this career, too. What bright spots do you see and what kinds of things excite you about agriculture that, that are coming along? Oh, there is a whole series of things. I do embrace technology. I find it amazing what we can do on our phones that can help our farms. I am incredibly encouraged by the renewed focus on soil and how important soil is to us and how lucky we are in Vermont that, yeah, we may have some very heavy soils, but if handled properly and treated properly, they can be very productive. And yes, you. there is no doubt you will have frustrating years like this. My wife's vegetable garden out just at the back of our house here, and we're actually on very well-drained soil right where our house is. Ledge is only about 18 inches or less below our soil, and we put a huge amount of horse manure into our garden. <laughs> We're having one of the most productive vegetable gardens we've ever had this year. 
I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the Northeast Pasture Consortium. The Northeast Pasture Consortium is an alliance of farmers, researchers, service providers, and policymakers across the 12 Northeast states focused on issues of importance to pasture-based livestock farms. The consortium connects folks from Maine to West Virginia around grazing topics and helps set USDA and university research priorities across the region. Visit grazingguide.net to learn more about our work and join the mailing list to hear about upcoming events and farmer scholarships. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited that the, the pandemic, for all its negativity, also said, hey, wait a minute, we need to concentrate on food resiliency. Mm. We need to concentrate. We need to encourage these small, diverse farms because the big operations, the five huge companies that sell 99% of the meat in this country failed us for yeah. what reason. The structure, the food system structure failed us. I'm encouraged that we've had a, a renewed focus on food security. And I'm encouraged by the fact that farmers can and will have a huge beneficial impact on our response to the environment. I absolutely one thing I keep saying to people who tell me, and people do tell me, we got to get rid of all the livestock. We need to be all plant-based. And I tell them, you know, when you can go out and start grazing grass and live, uh, I might, I might agree with you. <laughs> I always remember a number way back from my days in the National Grazing uh, Conservation Initiative. I think at that time, they talked about 148 million acres of privately owned grazing land in the United States. And it's maybe more or less now, I have no idea. But you need ruminants to convert that. And I also happen to believe that there are certain amino acids and other nutrients that you cannot get from any plant-based diet. You may be able to say, oh yeah, you can get the 20 grams of protein you need, but they're not the right kinds of protein. Now, yes, I do believe, I, I do believe we should eat, probably eat less meat. I, I eat less meat than I used to, but I don't, carry that over to cheese. You can never eat enough cheese. Um, I knew we were kindred spirits. <laughs> whether it's goat, sheep, or cow, or whatever. I Buffalo, absolutely believe yeah. I, I will be having cheese any minute. <laughs> so I, think, I think it's a balance. Everything yeah. is a balance. Uh, I actually was just reading an article earlier today over breakfast in a progressive farmer about the fact that there are, for example, methane digesters now, which you can 
make work financially for like 150 cows. That's um, amazing. Those those didn't exist. Right. And, <laughs> but not only that, but you then take the gas and you clean it and you compress it. I have an acquaintance in England who's a leader in this, and they're compressing it into liquid gas and they run all their tractors off it. That's amazing. So, so their carbon footprint is getting smaller and smaller all the mm -hmm. time. Yes, mm -hmm. they're And I may not agree totally with what's his name from UC Davis, Mittelheiner, and the methane cycle. But yeah. I do believe that part of the criticism that is directed at livestock is misdirected because it's purely an excuse for allowing the production of or the escape of methane in the industrial side which never existed before 18 they're blaming livestock for something that i'm confident that we will always demonstrate that we are working to produce livestock in the best way we can. And I think it is hard to justify um, feedlots and that sort of thing. And I have some very good friends who manage large feedlots who I met when I was on the beef board years ago. Um, and, and they do a great job. But is that really how we should be doing it? I think it's, it's tricky, but I do think it's all a balance. And we need, and I think we are ideally suited in Vermont and New England for that balance, and particularly in Vermont. I would hope to see using technology so a farmer could go out, a grazer could go out. I remember in the days of Bill Murphy, we were sort of, how far up your ankle did the grass come? Yeah. <laughs> You literally can take a photo on your phone and it pretty much can tell you how many pounds of dry matter you got right there. Totally. And it makes it much easier and better to manage that. We were in England. I hadn't been back to England for four years. We were in England this spring. And I was fascinated at how their pastures for their cows or sheep are so much closer grazed than ours are. Oh my goodness, right? I see that yeah. in movies even. I'm like, oh, look at look at them go for graze over there. I, I was very <laughs> interested that I you know, went and saw a friend of mine who milks about 250 cows. And when they let them out to pasture, there's barely standing room only on the amount of grass they let those. They literally want them to graze it totally, and then they'll move them. Oh, but they goodness. move them regularly and the grass recovers and they make amazing amounts of milk. Yeah, so it works, and I guess, yeah. Grass. Yeah. And here we are, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I can fully get my head around, okay, we graze a third, we trample a third, we leave a third. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and yet if I look at Ramsey and Mellish who, bought our farm, Rams in Caroline. And I think this year they've grazed so much better than they've grazed in the past. There seems to be a pretty, and whether it's the moisture or, well, you know, and they've, 
they've been lucky, I think. Uh, it has been soggy out there occasionally, but they haven't, the cows really haven't torn the land up. That's huge. Yeah. And, um, but it's terrible. I walk across the fields and think, oh, God, how, we've got to get rid of that fescue. How are we going to get rid of that fescue? <laughs> Without spraying, they're organic. So how do they do it? And, 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 and is it the right grass to get rid of? And should they do it? It's, we probably shouldn't. Well, no, I'm very happy that we're still on our farm because I love where we are. But oh, it's terrible walking around and thinking, oh, what if we did that? What if? And I'll have these long conversations with Ramsey on occasion and say, well, you know, but he's he's incredible what he's doing. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, and I have I've I've been there once, so I did I didn't even know that it was your farm until until we were talking with him. We just went to see him for dairy grazing apprenticeship, just a conversation with them, and and yeah, and that was when I found out that was your farm, and I was like, oh, well, now it gives me a much better picture of what John's had to work with over these years, and yeah, yeah. It, I think you're quite a brave person to stay on the farm and be close because that strikes me as it wouldn't necessarily be easy to have a front row seat to the next generation of folks doing things differently. Anything's, you know, whether they're doing a better job or they're doing a worse job or they're doing a different job. Like that's, that's, yeah. I mean, they've, they milk what, uh, they milk 200 cows they have a beef herd of over 200 now. They have chickens they're raising for eggs. They have, they're doing amazing stuff. Yeah. And they bought more than a couple of other farms, or they're, they're renting, I know, at least two more farms and bought a farm up in Shelburne mm-hmm. uh, and uh, trying to expand. I just don't know uh, how they do it all. It's very much a partnership, him and Caroline. They're learning as they go, and they, they're they doing a far better job now than they were doing, oh, God, it's almost, what is it? It's almost seven years ago since we sold the farm. Right, right. 20, 2016, they bought the farm. Yeah. And the farm did take, it took a little longer to sell than we thought it would. But I was very lucky. You know, I I told you things at the end were were difficult. We had accumulated a, a good chunk of debt. But when we sold the farm, we sold it well. And you know, like I owned owed the grain company quite you know substantial sum of money that point but they I, I will say this for that grain company who i probably better not name but i have a great respect for them because they never the owner he never put a lien on my place hmm. he never doubted that we were going to pay him mm-hmm. and when we sold the farm and had the check and we paid him off he treated us very well that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And we, we ended up in a great place. And yeah, getting the job for the agency just worked really well for me. I worked with a great group of people and 
I and and I got to work with a, a lot of farmers, a lot of great farmers. But anyway. <laughs> no, my no, ninety nine percent of them <laughs> <laughs> great farmers. Right, <laughs> you know, and if if the, when this gig that I'm on now ends, I mean, I'm <laughs> you probably figured out I'm in my early seventies now. Right, right. You know? And and yet I I want to keep working. If I'm asked to stay on, that'll be a tricky decision. Yeah. Because I'm sort of really beginning to get into a groove in this job now. And I feel, oh, we could really make some change. Yeah. And then next Yeah, year, a little momentum could be a really good thing. Not that I'm pressuring you. I'm not pressuring you. <laughs> but even if I stopped doing this, I, I'm sure I would be talking to you and to other friends of mine and saying, hey, I want to help farmers. If there's a farmer who needs help and I can help, have them call me and do consultancy work or something like that. You know, that's what I would like. Yeah. But anyway, all in the future, Jen. I am really grateful to have spent this time with John and shared his voice with you. I don't have, not just because he's English. but that's awesome too. Um, I don't have any idea about how many other leaders in federal government are retired from active farming, but I just think that his breadth of perspective is something really unique. And I would love to see lots of that kind of perspective around the country, um, especially in USDA. Some topics that were raised today, I just wanted to circle back around to uh, to highlight that the whole concept of the role of government to help or hinder Things can take a long time, but government has the ability to create great societal shifts for the better or the worse, even if they're really slow. And sometimes we don't notice them because they are really slow over time. And today we are living with the after effects of the decisions that were made in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And and I know, I recognize folks around the country I talk to, like many farmers and ranchers have an uncomfortable relationship with government. But it's complicated and they need us. And government is only as good as uh, those of us on the ground who get involved. And if we get involved today, we can help shape the next 20 years or 30 years of agriculture. It isn't always in our lifetimes, which is tough. And it's not going to save us today. And it may not help our farming prime if we're actively farming right now. But we can still make a difference for the folks um, in the future who come behind us, whether those are our kids or those are the next group of first generation folks. Um, we can we can help. We can help. So another topic uh, that that we touched on very briefly was the the like less meat, better meat argument. Um, I actually am not a big fan of the less meat, better meat argument in that the less meat part. Um, Diana Rogers is a registered dietitian who's been sharing the message that many of us are not getting enough protein. That's really resonated with me personally. Uh, I know that I was not. And plant-based but diets um, often move things in the wrong direction. And um, so, so back when the country was first settled by Europeans, there were many more ruminant animals than there are now. But I do agree with John's point that it is all about balance. And what we're what we are trying to do is very place-based. 
livestock agriculture is very place-based, both the people and the animals and the environment. And we all have to find that balance. It's not a one-size-fits-all. I think that's one of the challenges of government is and, and large-scale decisions is it seems like a one-size-fits-all. And it's not true. It's not true. So we're very place-based and individual people have different nutritional needs. We can't make one decision for everybody. So anyway, I included a link for more resources through um, uh, Diana Rogers' website, which is called Sustainable Dish. Uh, she's also started a nonprofit, which is the Global Food Justice Alliance, uh, where there's a whole lot of really interesting information. And I, I find her stuff really interesting um, to read through. It's very science-based and it's very thoughtful as well. So if it's something that you'd like to dive into, that link is there. And then my overall observation, like to close this out, my overall observation um, is that this whole interview with John was a love story. And, and sure, there's the clear love story with his wife, Lisa, over 47 plus years of marriage. But the great deal of love that John has for farmers of all kinds is just humbling. And, and we might not always agree on specific choices or directions like, you know, the meat thing. Uh, but what I want as a farmer myself and a person who works on behalf of other farmers is that the people sitting in decision-making chairs actually care about the people that they're in charge of. It makes me feel a little bit better. Even if I might disagree with the decisions, it makes me feel a little bit better about the decisions that get made because at least I know it came from a place of caring. And I don't say this as a person with any FSA loans because we didn't qualify for any FSA loans when we bought this farm. We had to find it a different way. So I'm not, I'm, I don't even have any experience with FSA particularly, but it doesn't change the fact that when people sitting in, in the decision-making chairs care about the people that they are um, trying to help, hopefully better decisions do get made. So what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Uh, reach out with your comments or questions at choosingtofarm.com. Check the show notes for links to John's contact information at FSA, as well as links um, to some of the topics we talked about. I included a link to Bill Murphy's book, um, uh, Greener Grass on Your Side of the Fence, which is a classic um, and also I included a video from, uh, Frank Mitloner at UC Davis, just talking a little bit about, um, uh, uh, air emissions and livestock, just to give you a little bit of an introduction to some of his work. As always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, consider supporting our Patreon or leave a public review. They help a lot and they are free and they boost our... 2024 is the year we are going big. So they help boost our Spotify, our Apple podcasts, and all those other places too. So finally, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Gathering of Good Grazers is coming to UMass in um, late January. And I hope that you do check out those registration and info links in the show notes. Everything is live to, to register right now. Um, please join the mailing list of the Northeast Pasture Consortium and you will get notified with updates about this event and other future events that stretch from all the way from Maine to West Virginia and sometimes a little bit further south too. So there's all kinds of scholarship options um, that are coming through the consortium for uh, farmers, service providers, and students 
to attend both this event and then also attend future events over the next couple of years. Um, thanks very, very much to our USDA NRCS uh, GLCI funding that is helping with scholarships to get folks to events. So we're really excited and we hope you'll join us at the Gathering of Good Grazers in January. And you can do that online or in person, but we hope you come in person. That's awesome. So it is such an honor to be able to share your stories out in the world. Farmer to Farmer is how we learn and how we build a community. And that's what I hope we're doing together, one episode at a time. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. Have a great day. <laughs>